Hello and welcome back to Herpetological Highlights. This is episode 9 and we are looking specifically at one species this week. We are looking at the Golden Mantella. I'm Ben Marshall and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And we have a trio of papers all about the Golden Mantella, focusing more on its sort of captive breeding and conservation angles, really. Yeah, it's going to be a nice change, I think, from... um... Straight up pure ecology, have a look at some uh, active conservation and some ex situ conservation, which is quite cool. Yeah, golden mantella frogs, a nice a nice species that a lot of work's going into, so it seems yes. only logical for us to kind of attack them head on and try and learn about what people are doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to start and introduce the first paper? Uh, yeah, well, <clears throat> I thought maybe we could sort of, um, as we're simply talking about just the golden mantella, we could kind of do a tiny bit on the golden mantella itself, save doing it like in amongst the papers. What do you think? Yes, I I think that's quite a good idea. Yeah, get it, yeah. get the golden mantella out into the open so everybody can see it and poke fun at it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Reveal it for the horrible beast it really is. <laughs> no, they're not horrible at all. They're actually really cool. Um, the golden mantella... Uh, Mantella aurantiaca is endemic to the island of Madagascar. Um, it's kind of found in, well, it's not in a coastal region. It's kind of slightly to the east, kind of central location, but it's got a really small range, hasn't it? It's got a range of, mm. uh, what is it? IUCN reckoned it was like less than 10 kilometers squared or something overall. Yes, yeah, super, super restricted, which is one of the reasons we have conservation efforts geared to protecting it because it's, if it's so restricted it tends to be quite vulnerable yeah that's right and um it's the range it doesn't have it is kind of east of the capital Antananarivo, which you've reliably informed me is shortened to tana tana i think i think that's a legitimate shortening yeah that's what we refer to it as <laughs> it definitely makes it definitely makes it easier for me to say um but yeah so it's it's endemic to this area called the moramanga district um which is in alotra mangoro in madagascar it's a really famous frog actually isn't it i don't know about you but uh at least when i was younger golden mantellas were kind of one of the first sort of first frogs i was really made properly aware of because uh they are kind of a charismatic face of a lot of conservation projects. One of the more famous frogs, they're really uh, popular in the pet trade. Um, they're also kind of widely represented in, in zoos. I think there's about 35 zoos that are kind of currently trying to breed them. Um, the reason for that is, is this, as you mentioned, they are incredibly endangered with really, really uh, low, sorry, a really small range. They're... Um, classified as critically endangered and uh, a lot of their population is very near to a mine um, which obviously you don't associate mines with um, undisturbed forest you kind of associate mines with like gaping chasms where wildlife used to be so yeah and if you want to put a number on those uh, exports for pet trade stuff 1994 to 2003 116,000 frogs were removed from Madagascar cool. Wow! Yeah, half I mean, of all um, mantella species taken from Madagascar. So the golden mantella represented half. Of... Yeah, during during that period. Yeah. Wow! I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? And that's just wow. the stuff that we sort of know about. That's that's the stuff that's been reported on by a UN uh, trade database. 
Yeah, wow. I mean, it is staggering the, the numbers of uh, exports coming out of Madagascar because I remember talking to you about the... Um, the Well, we touched on it in the Felsuma episode, didn't we? Um, but the numbers of like Felsuma geckos and Europlatus geckos, number in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, and, and chameleons as well. The scale of uh, pet trade exploitation is phenomenal really it's it's well worrying it is bad it is bad of course um yeah it's a shame uh but then as we're going to find out the kind of captive husbandry thing is also incredibly important and um yeah we talked a lot before didn't we about putting uh putting very endangered species in the hands of capable um hobbyists as a means yes. of conservation but yeah yeah ah it's complicated it's complicated but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, they're sort of very small, well, they're kind of small, golden frogs, aren't they? They're, they're called golden mantellas because they're this uniform golden, reddy, yellow kind of colour. They're really striking with these mm. little, little black eyes. Um, really, really nice little frogs. Yeah. If you want specifics on how big they are, males are around 20 millimetres and males, uh, sorry, females being around 22 I believe Ooh. that's uh, snout to vent length. That is. Ah, oh, so they are. They're they're pretty little, really. Two centimeter long frog. Yeah. But yeah, as we mentioned, um, kind of a conservation needs assessment was done on them, and the Amphibian Arc, which is an organisation promoting uh, kind of captive breeding and ex situ conservation, really prioritised them, um, and kind of decided they were going to need assistance. And following on from that, has allowed a lot of research, which I reckon is now is a good time to get into. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we're starting off with uh, a paper that's looking at them in situ, actually what they do and what they eat, where they are in Madagascar. So we're looking at a paper by Woodhead, Vences, Vietes, Gamboni, Fisher and Griffiths, published in 2007 in Herpetological Journal, Specialist or Generalist, Feeding Ecology of the Malagasy Poison Frog, Mantella orentiaca. And... uh, so, as the title suggests, they are looking at what these guys eat in the wild and how that is balanced between what is available and whether there's some sort of selection. Yeah. You know, picking other food sources over other food sources. Yeah, so exactly that. They went out and they uh, did a big long transect line, which is just a, a line through the forest where they knew there was lots of frogs. And um, they captured, I think it was 65 frogs. And they compared what they had eaten to what was available in the environment. And the way they did that was they got all the stomach contents of the frogs via a method that they referred to as stomach flushing, which is... Yeah, I didn't want to look into that. That doesn't sound pleasant for anybody involved. No, I mean, I've never had my stomach flushed and I'm glad, but, (laughs) you know, science. So, uh, yeah, well, actually, it sounds pretty uninvasive and all the frogs went back unharmed. They basically just pump water into them until they till their food comes out um, and then they put them back after so just wash them know. out <laughs> rinse yeah. out your frog it's kind of like an enema but from the front oh dear yeah <laughs> i know <laughs> pretty awful but yeah they uh they then once they had all the gut contents from the frogs they did one meter squared quadrats which they put on the floor and they collected all the leaf litter where the frogs had been found and they looked at all the different arthropods, which is basically all the invertebrates. Um, arthropods is a phylum that contains like arachnids, crustaceans, insects, butterflies, you name it. 
and they were just looking to see how the, as you said, how the contents of the stomachs compared to the contents of the leaf litter that the frogs were surrounded by and whether or not they were kind of choosing to eat different things preferentially despite there being little. So, you know, yeah. it, if it turned out there was loads of ants in the front frogs' bellies, despite ants being relatively uncommon compared to other invertebrates, they'd know that they definitely had a preference for ants, for example. Yeah, and the motivation behind this is that they are poisonous. They do have alkaloid poisons on their skin. And to get alkaloid poisons, they've got to come from somewhere. And there's quite a good study by Saporito et al. in 2012 that compares all the alkaloids and the presence of alkaloids across all, um, I think it's annurans, and uh, mantillidae, which the mantella surprisingly belongs to. Yeah, that's their family, isn't it? Is one of is part of five families which have alkaloid poisons on in their skin. The others are uh, Dendrobatidae, which is the poison dart frogs, Bufinidae, which are your fat off toads, Myobactridae, which are from Australia, and then very recently discovered there's Ephurodactylidae, if I'm saying that right which has only just been found, and only recently, two species discovered in Cuba, um, Ufurodactylus orientalis and Ufurodactylus hiberae. But there's a whole bunch of families of annuans that have these alkaloids. And what sort of blew my mind was how many different types of alkaloids there are. I mean, just take a guess. How many alkaloids have been found in these frogs? Ooh, let's think... Okay, sensible guess. 65? 850. Whoa, that's mental. And those are all individual kind of noxious, poisonous compounds that could do a predator harm? Um, Whether they're all, all noxious and th- there's all the alkaloids, I'm, I'm not sure if all of them would be harmful or not. I'm sure some are relatively benign. But 433 of those are found in Mentella, and they're the second most alkaloid-rich family of frogs out there cool that's quite quite a claim to fame 266 of them are unique to mantella as well wow which is and pretty wicked is that because those 266 are unique to the invertebrate fauna of madagascar well perhaps this is this is something something we don't know certainly some of it could be being uh, generated by the frog so far only nine percent of the 850 alkaloids found have been shown to have a direct dietary origin. Oh wow! So there's a there's a lot of room for um uh what's what's the word for oh fab- fabrication I guess fabric no fabrication isn't the right word no but I know what you mean like Ge- just... generating these alkaloids you know yeah. within the frog itself yeah not simply sequestering them from their prey species yes manufacturing them these all sound these are all very industrial words and that's not what i'm looking for i like the idea of a frog (laughs) manufacturing something that's quite funny just busy factory of frogs yeah (laughs) busy away in the leaf litter his boss is giving him a hard time (laughs) but yeah it's just just fascinating the diversity of these these toxins on frogs and how some of them are shared i mean we were talking about the similarities to poison dart frogs there are 145 alkaloids that are found in both those species and species of Mantella. Hmm. So there is crossover here. Right. But uh, 
Well, yeah, I mean, that kind of links into the, one of the overarching themes of the paper that we're discussing, doesn't it? Because they were kind of anticipating that... Uh, I don't know if they actually specifically said it. Maybe I was anticipating it, but because it's thought that they sequester their toxins from ants and potentially mites, which have been shown to be a source of dietary alkaloids in other poison frogs, I kind of anticipated that ants and mites would feature quite heavily in their diet, but um, that, mm. wasn't, that wasn't actually the case what was the case the case was that um yeah well they looked they did they did a really thorough examination didn't they of all the different well obviously not species but they kind of grouped them into families in of what the uh what the frogs were eating in terms of all the different arthropods and you know they've got really good diagrams to show how these arthropods were represented in the stomach contents and then compared them directly to the leaf litter what you kind of see is that um there wasn't really a lot of evidence for prey selection in the frogs, really, was there? No, no, it was... It, the the diagram we're talking about is quite a sort of basic bar chart, but two bar charts next to each other, one from the stomach contents, one from the leaf litter, so it's this very nice, clear way of demonstrating... Because you can just see, looking from one to the other, which bars are higher and which bars are lower, and the general sort of pattern yeah. and shape that the bar charts are showing. And it is very similar bar a couple of uh, shifts yeah so i learned a new word reading this paper and that was myrmophagus no sorry myrmecophagus myrmecophagus yes i had to look that one up too i hadn't hadn't heard it before that's eating ants ants and termites isn't it ants and termites yeah yeah so uh yeah some of my favorite frogs are myrmecophagus and i didn't even know it but um, <laughs> yeah, this study kind of suggested that actually they're simply microphagus, which is where they just eat small things, mm. which I yes. kind of liked. But yeah, you were saying there was a couple of distinct exceptions too, actually, wasn't there? Notable ones in terms of uh, disparity between what was found in the leaf litter and what was found in the frog's diet. One of which was flies, small flies. Mm. Um, they weren't really heavily represented in the leaf litter, and yet the frogs seemed to eat a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, this was this was an interesting one. I think, uh, well, they they didn't want to. I don't know. I sense there was a sort of hesitation to really take that as a solid finding, because they couldn't guarantee that their their method of looking through the leaf litter actually guaranteed them to find all the flies that the frogs were finding. Because obviously, flies can fly and yeah. therefore can get out of. Um, a leaf litter survey, perhaps, if they're disturbed before the actual bulk of the leaf litter is captured. Yeah, exactly. Which does make sense. I mean, that it seems perfectly plausible that it that that could happen. So, yeah, I think I think to be honest, to me, they've probably hit the nail on the head there. The fact that the frogs, a fly, probably presents quite an attractive prey item because it's buzzing around in the face of the frog, mm. um, and yet, like you say, you know, you try and catch a fly and it will probably fly away. So. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the other one was the mites, wasn't it? Um, yes. There were there were a lot more mites than there were mites in the frogs' bellies. Um, mites were really common amongst the leaf litter, but they weren't well represented. And uh, they kind of postulated two reasons why that might be the case. One of which was the fact that the mites are kind of the smallest arthropods, really, that are there. And they're quite cryptic, so they're actually hard to catch, they're hard to find. Or alternatively, it wasn't worth the frog's time to eat things that were so small, both of which are quite convincing arguments. Yeah, and it, and it's further backed up by the fact that although mites were quite frequently eaten, they didn't actually make up much of the volume 
of prey items because they're so small. So that's a lot of instances of trying to catch something compared to how much you're actually getting out of it. Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. I did notice though, I read that um, these frogs, they've evolved their feeding strategy. You know, if you've seen a video, I know you will have, you know, you see those videos of the bullfrogs with the iPhone up next to them and there's a video of a worm playing on the screen. Yeah, and, and they're all just banging their heads against the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah, all yeah. just like <laughs> busting into it, like whacking it, knocking it over. Well, these uh, golden mantellas have actually evolved not to do that lunge when they attack. They actually just like yes. gently stick their tongue out and kind of like get get food, um, which I thought was quite cool. And I... Overall, what this paper kind of taught me was that these frogs do kind of like to chill and expend as little energy as possible. They just kind of sit in one place and like they move around occasionally a little bit, a little bit here, a little bit there and just poke their tongue out eating tiny insects. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring up the the not jumping to hunt because that's actually one of these one of these traits, which is related to, I suppose, I suppose, uh, microphagy. And it's also seen in your poison dart frogs. There's a Vences et al. 1998 paper that looks at the full suite of characteristics that are seen in both dart frogs and these mantellas and sort of make them, allow them to exploit this niche they've got. The first one we mentioned was skin skin alkaloids. The second is the aposomatic coloration with their they're being bright uh, yellow and poison dart frogs are wonderful, wonderful colours. Yeah, they're sort of warning colorations. Um, third one's diurnal activity. Uh, the one you just mentioned, not jumping to hunt. They don't have forked tongues, interestingly. I didn't think that was... <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, duh, they're not snakes. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I think I might have been missing something there. Or maybe, maybe, maybe I've lo- written that down wrong. Actually. Maybe lots of frogs have forked tongues. I didn't know that. No. No maxial teeth and no uh, vomerin teeth. So they don't they don't have either of these teeth <laughs> these types of teeth or tend so, not to. So they're quite gummy as a species. They're quite gummy, small oh, size, you know, thirty to fifty millimeters, and don't have a particularly broad head, because I suppose they're not, you know, gape limited in any sort of way. But that's what you see across the poison dart frogs and mantellas, this sort of suite of traits that make them quite good, presumably quite good, at uh, microphagy and filling in that niche. That's really cool. I like that a lot. Yeah. I think, yeah, they're oh, they're funny little things, aren't they? Just lurking around on the forest floor, eating all the tiny insects and just being really poisonous and inedible to everything. So that was the sort of conclusion, wasn't it, of the paper that they uh, they really didn't have a huge preference for anything. They just kind of ate things that were small. Yeah, basically, I mean, basically. And I don't think they really suggested that they were particularly selecting ants over anything else or choosing prey that may uh, boost their alkaloid levels. Yeah. But at the same time, they also caveated that with... It might be at different times of the year, they eat different uh, groups of insects. Yes, they Especially do. Especially if they have to partially hibernate, you've got to eat quite... I suppose fatter prey to get yourself ready for hibernation and things like that, and maybe there's a there's another period of high alkaloid prey consumption, yeah, for some other reason. And they did also say that the um, the percentage of ants that were consumed by golden mantellas were actually greater than other sort of species which uh, fill relatively similar niches uh, elsewhere. Mm. 
But I guess that just reflects their specific adaptation, really. Yeah. I mean, I did also just want to finish off with... So there's a, there is evidence of this uh, alkaloids working against predators. So there's a haying, haying 2001 paper that report a, an aborted predation by uh, Acrantophis madagascariensis, the uh, Malagasy ground boa. So, you know, big-bodied snake. And they basically re- report it coming in, biting the frog, presumably not liking the taste of it, and releasing and going about its business and carrying on. Cool. That ties into what you were saying earlier a little bit, doesn't it? Because um, it'd be interesting to know whether the same alkaloids that are poisonous are the same alkaloids that taste bad, or whether they're kind of different compounds that are related. Yes, there's there's a real complexity to the the alkaloids and how they're interacting with other creatures. Because in that same paper, along with a paper by Jovanovic et al. 2009, they report two species that are perfectly capable of eating toxic mantellas. You have a Zonosaurus madagascariensis. Zonosaurus are sort of medium-sized, medium to small-sized plated lizards. And the other species is Famnosophis lateralis, which are um, small to medium snake. And they're actually eating golden mantellas, or just mantellas in general? These guys, uh, yeah, they are golden mantellas. Yeah, that's what they're successfully eating. Wow, so yeah, that goes to show you, doesn't it? Aposemitism only goes so far. Yeah, the the common name for the Famnosophis is the lateral water snake. They look very much like a sort of garter snake. Okay, say. cool. <laughs> By a sort of <laughs> glance. So, so just kind of your generic watery colour bread. Exactly the sort of frog, uh, frog type of snake you'd expect to eat a frog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So, yes, these frogs are... I don't know. Have you got anything else to say about that one? I think I'm more or less there. No, I think I, I don't think so. I think it, it's a quite a nice dietary study. Yeah. I think it would be nice if it sort of expanded across seasons, because it would be really interesting to see if they could do a dietary study alongside a study of levels of alkaloid in the skin. And how that fluctuates over the year, along with prey abundance and consumption, to see if there is this sort of seasonal variation. That would be really neat. Yeah, that would be taking it to the next level. And I suppose um, this paper, I mean, when did it come out? This is quite an old one, isn't it? 2007, older than we usually talk about. Well, we wanted something that was their wild, natural lives to start us off, didn't we? (laughs) Yeah, but I suppose this paper probably contributed an awful lot to the success that we're about to talk about in captivity that people have had and just feeding them small insects and giving a little bit of a better idea of their ecology, really. Yeah, no, no, I think any information like this is hugely valuable for for such a threatened species, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, with that in mind, should we move on to paper number two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so the second paper is by Passos, Garcia and Young, 2017. Neglecting the call of the wild, captive frogs like the sound of their own voice. Uh, This is published in PLOS One. And, um, yep, it's entirely open access, as all PLOS One journals are. So, like, as we love, (laughs) go and check it out for yourself. As we we always say. Yeah. The one previously we just discussed, uh, you can find it on the internet. It's old enough now that you can just find it, so... Yeah, these are all all the ones we talk about today, actually, you can read online for yourself, which is good. And this paper was, the research was conducted by 
some people from Chester Zoo and also sort of in collaboration with Salford University in Manchester, as was the next one we're going to discuss, kind of the same people did both. Yes, we've sort of got a double header of uh, Passos Garcia and Young, both their papers coming out from what I presume are studies done at the same time. Yeah, it did. It certainly seemed that way and published in the same place. Um, yeah. But it's cool because, you know, we're talking about these captive breeding efforts. Uh, we kind of touched them at the beginning and they used the captive populations in Chester Zoo and elsewhere for these uh, studies. And um, they actually managed, you know, staff at the zoo managed to find the time to contribute and get research published which i mean if that isn't the function of a modern zoo i don't know what is i think it's really cool that we're sat here in 2017 reading research about an endangered species not just that a zoo has contributed to but actually like actively published i think that's really impressive yeah i mean it's it's nice to see research community and the zoo community working in tandem that's that's fantastic isn't it it is it is and it's really cool to know that at chester zoo they've got two little a portion of their golden mantellas which are on display to the public uh, which is fantastic, obviously, um, educating people as they go around. But then you've also got a second lot, which are in the biosecure facility, which they're actively uh, conducting research on. And so, mm. you know, you've got one kind of funding the other in a way. And I just think that's brilliant. I think it's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way zoos should should probably go, shouldn't they? They, they, they can't just be a an attraction. Yeah, they're not they just have to a... be put to work in some ways, don't yeah. they? They're not just a repository for unusual creatures, are they anymore? They've got to be like no. they've got to be active proponents of conservation and research and yeah, go Chester, it's wicked. I've never been to yeah. Chester Zoo. I would like I plan on going because it's not a million miles from me, so it's not apparently it's monstrous and they have a huge number of animals that you probably won't see everything with one trip. Wow. Oh, that's pretty exciting actually. Maybe I'll who? Maybe, maybe I'll go tomorrow. <laughs> drop everything. <laughs> yeah, drop everything. I need to go to the zoo now. <laughs> I can go and look at a golden mantella and be like, oh, there you are, small creature. I spent a lot of time reading about you. <laughs> Finally, we meet face yeah. to face. Yeah. <laughs> at last, I see you in all your glory. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I'll, uh, what was I saying anyway? Oh, yeah. So, this paper, back to the topic at hand. Neglecting the Call of the Wild, the frogs that like the sound of their own voice. Um, we discussed frog vocalizations in episode two, didn't we? Mm. Um, we were kind of we touched on the fact. Well, we didn't touch on it. We got quite into it, actually. The the frogs call for a variety of reasons, really important for their social functioning. So males call um, to advertise to the mates um, and impress a female. They also use it as a way of spacing themselves out and defending territory. So it's kind of important then that captive animals raise in captivity because obviously they don't experience the full suite of things which would happen to a wild frogs. Although every effort is made, I've no doubt, at Chester and elsewhere to encourage frogs to enjoy as much of the rich tapestry of life as they possibly can. Yeah. Well, this never... is what's so important with the sort of 2009 paper, isn't it? Is you have these natural studies that you can draw upon to make your captive environment closer to reality right yeah exactly yeah and yeah. Um, actually the last paper we're going to discuss kind of touches on the importance of that even more um but yeah so really it's important that these frogs maintain a knowledge kind of a weird way of putting it but it's important that these frogs don't lose their ability to communicate in a normal way because if they're ever going to be released and sort of bolster natural populations they need to act in a normal way that the wild populations would kind of 
be familiar with, but also to kind of continue filling the niche that they did when they were wild. Um, so if you have a captive population of frogs which are released alongside a, a population which has always been wild and the captive frogs behave in an abnormal way or have a call which isn't recognisable to the wild frogs, then the likelihood is that their populations are never going to mix and you end up with two genetically distinct populations and really you haven't helped the conservation as much as you might think you have. No, I mean you could undermine undermine that population if you introduce a bunch of frogs that are sub-adapted you, you're going to start watering down how good these, these frog populations are to exploiting that niche, aren't you? They're going to be... There'll be more of them, but they might be less fit or less uh, less adapted, less... less yeah. yeah. You know, and, <laughs> less and good as, frogs. And then everyone who's involved with conservation doesn't get into it with the idea of making some, like, watery, half-baked animal. So, yeah, that's kind of why they decided to do this research. And Chester Zoo, who hold the captive animals, decided to do it. Um, but yeah, to give you an idea of, well, to give our listeners the idea of uh, some of the complexity of frog vocalizations, um, they cited a paper in this one that we're talking about uh, by B. et al. in 1999. And um, what they did was they played recordings of frogs, green frogs, ranaclamatans, to other green frogs, other male green frogs. And um, they played the vocalizations of differently sized males to the males in the study and what they found was that when the males heard a male which sounded bigger they made their calls sound deeper because the deepness of the call is associated with large size yeah Um, so frogs aren't just kind of sitting there blindly making a noise they are kind of listening to the stimulus and then reacting accordingly um so it's not just the case that these frogs are just sort of hardwired to make a sound it's kind of the point i wanted to make they're actually you know taking in environmental variables and all these other things and they're making a noise the same green frogs also called more often to frogs that sounded larger which kind of paints the picture of a frog that's like oh my goodness there's a giant around the corner i better just shout as much as i can and as deeply as i can in the hopes that that brute doesn't come lumbering around the corner and try and take my territory so that's Um, that's quite an interesting aspect i suppose that's to compensate that's an easier uh way of adapting than making you know slowly pushing frogs to be bigger is just sounding bigger yes yeah and it's actually something that you see in other species other groups as well the um i remember reading a paper about veiled chameleons chameleo calyptratus and they have colorations on their bodies which actually reflect how good they are at fighting so males have a familiarity with certain elements of the coloration that they can other males can produce and they know without having to fight which males are better fighters Um, and and that's actually reflected in the eventual bouts that do happen between them so yeah uh, a lot of male animals will go to quite extreme lengths to avoid actual confrontation Um, and sometimes that means making their voice deeper to subvert the other males thinking that there's a big one. Yes, that's that's wicked. I love that sort of stuff. That's really, that's a really smart solution to avoid a massive frog fight. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, so that paper I was talking about was by Ligon and McGraw, who are big dogs in the chameleon colour change world, actually. I've read a lot of their stuff. <laughs> wicked. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, what were we talking about? We were talking about the um, 
why calls are important, basically. That's correct. Uh, so this paper focuses on what biologists call phonotaxis, which is... Phonotaxis, um, yeah, that's something that I hadn't heard of before in that. It's, it's, I mean, I'm learning new words all the time, of course I am. But that was another new <laughs> word. <laughs> yeah, I'd not heard of it either, and I liked it. I was like, oh, phonotaxis. And then I wanted to call it phonotaxic, but then actually it turns out it's phonotactic. Um, but yeah, phonotaxis is any kind of movement or change of body orientation. So if a frog pivots to look a different way upon hearing a noise, um, that's phonotaxis. So if the frog moves towards mm. a noise it hears, or even away from a noise that it hears, or looks towards or away from a noise, then that's um, phonotaxis. And in this study, they were measuring the phonotactic response of captive and wild uh, male golden mantellas to calls from wild and captive golden mantellas. So they were kind of trying to ascertain whether golden mantellas reacted differently to captive or wild golden mantella noises, and whether or not captive or wild golden mantellas reacted differently to noises and obviously whether the captive ones reacted differently to the wild or the captive and wild ones reacted differently to the captive or the wild and there's quite a good history of uh phonotactic studies in the literature too they they cited a trio which i went and looked just to see how much stuff is the older papers what they actually looked at the first one was a gearhard and rhinelander 1980 paper on Colocetus nubicola, and that was basically... What is a Colocetus nubicola, sorry? Boquette rocket frog. Ah. And uh, that paper just sort of remarked on how accurately these frogs could pinpoint and locate a sound. So there you go, you've got something backing up. This is a legitimate methodology. If they're picking it out pretty well, they're attuned to following audio cues. The second one was Narins et al. 2003, looking at Epidobates femoralis, and that's one of the papers that show you can elicit quite complicated and potentially aggressive behaviour from artificial stimuli. So playing this sound, you can get these frogs to react to it as if it was actually a real frog. You know, they are behaving in, in a way that, you'd, that you would expect if it was a real frog. They confirm that you could make a frog livid by playing at the noise of another frog. Yes. <laughs> um, and then the third one was looking at uh, Ranitomea imiata and Ranitomea variabilis by uh, Meyer et al. 2014. And this is a really cool one because this comes back to our Mullerian uh, mimics from the previous episode. So these two guys are Mullerian mimics, but the way they differentiate each other is by their calls. So there's no you know, they're not going to waste their time pursuing a mate that looks the same because they have different calls, so they can tell the difference. And they worked that out by using a phonotactic methodology to work out differences in reaction and call recognition. That's really cool. That's so cool. Yeah, it was really wicked. And it was just a nice trio of papers that sort of gives you a bit of a background on where this methodology has come from and how it's been used to pull out some quite remarkable bits of behaviour. It's quite satisfying to know that frogs differentiate their species the same way that scientists do, by listening Mm. to the sounds they make. Yeah, I mean, yeah, (laughs) it's really good. Really, really good. And so in our very own phonotactic uh, study, these uh, captive and wild golden mantellas, 
Um, they played Captive and Wild Golden Mantellas calls that had been recorded from three different populations, um, comprising mm. both wild calls from Mangabe, which is where they're from in the wild, and captive calls from both captive populations held in Madagascar at the Mitsinjo Captive Breeding Centre and um, Chester Zoo. And they, what they did was they got uh, the captive frogs and the wild frogs separately individually in boxes and then played them the calls and then kind of just monitored what their response was right yeah it's, it's, it's quite critical to point out that all these calls from these populations are statistically different they are distinct yes there were there, there are differences in these calls yeah wasn't it the case that um yeah the chester zoo frogs were way more different to the wild frogs um yeah and the ones from the Center in Madagascar, Mitsinjo, were more similar to the wild ones. I think so. I think that was the case. Yeah, but were they still different? I think they were still different. Yeah, all all of them were were statistically different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which is pretty wild. Um, well, so yeah, what they did was they basically put a video camera by the frog, played at this noise coming from a speaker, and the frog was on a grid, and they would see whether or not the frog headed towards the noise, which is what you'd expect it to do and sort of at what speed and how direct it was heading, like how accurately it was jumping towards, um, and whether or not they were kind of making a noise back, right? Basically, they were doing number of jumps, length of jumps, jump direction, path straightness, and overall duration. Yeah. And through those, you could get an idea of how uh, promptly and accurately the frog was reacting to the audio cues. Yeah. And um, you mentioned that the frogs from Chester Zoo had a different call. And what they actually found was that the wild frogs kind of responded very similarly to calls of all the frogs, regardless of where they were from. So Mm. the wild frogs recognised the calls of frogs from Chester, the ones held in captivity in Madagascar, and their wild counterparts, as you'd hope. Um, But the ones from Chester Zoo were much more interested in their own calls from their own population. They also had a less accurate response. So the wild frogs were the most accurate they reached the speaker using a shorter path sorry using a more direct path and in less time whereas captive frogs kind of dilly-dallied on their way to the speaker <laughs> they weren't quite Jumped sure. sort of sideways a bit took more jumps yeah it, they were just generally less uh motivated i guess to get to the call or they were less able to yeah, yeah. And um, like I mentioned earlier, the danger in this is um, I was talking about having two genetically distinct populations where the males from the captive population only attract females from the captive population, which is a possibility with this um, kind of research. And what that would mean, they call it assortative mating, um, Mm. which is where the frogs kind of sort themselves into distinct groups based on their lineage. And like we said earlier, that that has quite bad ramifications for the genetic mixing and the genetic viability of um, populations. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, I suppose it would come down to how golden mantellas breed, because maybe you could release just females if males are coming to females and you could just use wild males and bolster it with with, uh, captive females, if that was something, if they... if the female's recognition of calls didn't matter. Mm, that's an interesting idea, yeah, because they actually only checked males in this study, didn't they? Yeah, which I presume is because the males seek out the females. Um, well, they were playing male calls to males, so I think they were really... 
I don't know. Do males seek out females? I would have. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know. It, did, it might have just been a proxy for all calls, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think and, that was and general uh, understanding between captive and wild. That's what I sort of took it to mean. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they kind of uh, suggested the reason, a reason for this um, kind of enjoyment of their own calls, which they called the dear enemies. Dear enemies. Yes. Yeah, and what that is is where animals in captivity are kept in too close a proximity or closer than they would naturally be to their sort of male conspecifics in this case. So they're so well used to hearing the calls of males nearby because they're kept in like terrariums which are next door to each other that they no longer um, perceive them to be threats because obviously they can't maintain that level of an elevated stress response and excitement all the time. It's just not practical. Yes. So they kind of just become accustomed to hearing the males and they're no longer exhibiting a normal response to the sound of the males. Yeah, that's sort of boosted too by the fact that any sort of territorial threat from other frogs, you know, nothing plays out because they're in terrariums. What are they going to do? Yeah. Like it's, it's it's separate. So there's the the cost of reacting or not reacting is essentially, the you know, the same apart from if you don't react you haven't bothered doing something and you say the outcome's the same yeah it actually kind of becomes beneficial to just be a stone cold chiller the whole time and not get riled up about anything because regardless of how you behave you're going to be provided with um food and water and and, and, you know you don't have to compete for good spots yeah yeah and there's less competitiveness for for good spots yeah and there's going to be mating opportunities regardless because you're in a captive breeding facility (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's your sole purpose <laughs> yeah so um yeah oh, it would be really interesting though to see to get females into this um mixture and see how females responded to the male calls mm. yeah so um yeah they basically were just checking whether or not wild golden these mantellas were reacting to defend their territory really which apparently they would very viciously do well, the wild ones do it without hesitation, don't they? I mean, yeah. that was <laughs> just a very different on... response. <laughs> they're just living on the edge. As soon as they hear someone down the way, they're just going to go and get in a fight. They're going to charge in, yeah. smash that frog off that rock. Get yeah, out of exactly. here. <laughs> get out of here. This is my mossy portion. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it was a really cool, really cool study. And... Um, yeah, the one we're kind of about to discuss was sort of like showing off the benefits and how ex situ conservation was kind of actually, despite what you might expect. I won't give too much away, I suppose, but um, yeah, I, yeah. Sp- I suppose that, yeah, there is the, you know you're going to say sort of positive one is the next one. This does have a bitter like oh maybe the ex situ stuff isn't as good as we hope it is because if they can't interbreed successfully in the wild, you've just got a captive population that's isolated. Yeah. They did suggest a sort of solution, and that's a slow-release uh, scenario where, with a training period where the frogs are exposed to wild calls and more wild stimuli, and then they are slowly released back into um, a population. So there's a, like a training period. That's cool. It's a lot of effort, though, because they said they'd done that with um, 
golden lion tamarins because i think it was the golden lion tamarins that initially when they were released <laughs> it's really sad i shouldn't laugh like they had a population in captivity that they'd like you know bred really successfully and they were going to put them out in the mm. wild and then um they let them go and the golden lion tamarins just like didn't know what they were doing they didn't know how to do anything for themselves and they kind of like mostly starved um, yeah but then they ended up doing this soft training and you know like encouraging them to learn the techniques if they wanted to eat and like and eventually they were much more successful in their reintroduction which is really cool so there's no reason why they can't do this for golden man tellers except for the obvious one of like time and money because you're gonna have to employ a frog trainer which is presumably quite a time-consuming laborious job to me it sounds that sounds like quite a common thing to have been done with mammals and primates i mean i remember seeing documentaries about uh released orangutans and stuff they have this they are taken out on longer and longer excursions into the wild yeah. from the captive breeding facility. And, and I, I mean, I haven't heard of an example with frogs, but I, I presume there is one and I presume it works because otherwise they wouldn't be suggesting it, I, I, I would think. Yeah, it stands, I didn't I didn't go looking. It stands to reason, doesn't it? Yeah. Cool idea, though. I really, uh, yeah, I don't know. I love the sex situ conservation stuff. And I think, um, yeah, it's just great that they're actually releasing you know fully peer-reviewed journals about their successes and their failures yeah well i think it's, it's critical that the uh the failures are or the, or the downsides not really failure yeah. um are are out there because they're, they're problems to be overcome they're not there's no flat and flat out no we cannot do ex situ conservation and for a species like this it's kind of i mean i i personally don't particularly like the idea of ex situ conservation um but you don't have much of a choice when it comes to golden mandalas because they're in such a tight spot so yeah i mean i don't yeah it's certainly not anyone's first choice um but yeah with the golden mantellas, yeah kind of a necessity isn't it mm. cool well um i reckon that rounds that one off shall we move on to the second paper by the same same yes same crew of scientists same crew yeah same year same, same year same journal same journal same people um yeah so this one was by again um passos garcia and young and this one was entitled the tonic immobility test do wild and captive golden mantella frogs mantella or antiaca have the same response again 2017 plus one absolutely free go and check it out same study groups of frogs um with the exception yes there was an additional group of wild frogs wasn't there because in the first study they only used one population of wild frogs yeah. whereas in this one they used an, a second as well um and yeah again university of salford and chester zoo combining to do some research on uh tonic immobility aka thanatosis aka trust me i'm dead <laughs> please don't hurt me yeah i'm already dead yeah so they're basically testing um, whether or not wild and captive golden mantella frogs have different uh, feigning death uh, responses to predators. So this feigning death is where an animal gets captured by a predator or is like seriously intimidated by a predator. And as a kind of a last resort, in most cases, it will just completely pretend to be dead, go limp, often go belly up, maybe produce a horrible smell, stick mm. its tongue out. Um, <laughs> yeah. And... I actually always thought, like, I remember reading about this 
when I was a bit younger and always thinking like, how on earth could this work? Like, how does it possibly benefit the animal to play dead? Because the predator's like, you know, just got this foot on it and thinks, oh yeah, this animal's dead. Like, you're not yeah. going to get away. But then I actually had a snake do it to me, um, which was a, a radiated rat snake and um, doing some like measurements on it, what have you. And it just went completely limp in my hands. And... Um, my first response was just like, oh my God, I've killed a snake. This is really <laughs> bad. I was like, oh no. I was just like bereft. I was like, oh, this can't be good. And then the second I like lightened my grip on it, it like flashed. Bam, it's gone. Yeah, flash back to yeah. life. And it was like, see you later. Like just gone. Um, and yeah, so that, that's exactly how it works. The predator just thinks, oh, this animal's dead. I can have a little chill, you know, take my time, get my dinner in a second. And yeah the animal takes that opportunity to have one last flurry and make its escape yeah and alternatively it can also uh boost the look of aposomatic coloration yes um so warning colors it can just exaggerate those or with the case of some snakes they may have aposomatic coloration on their undersides so once they're flipped pretending to be dead that's then shown to whatever predator and that might put them off. Yes, yeah. Um, same yeah. same goes for the um the rough skin newt. Tarika granulosa. Newt. Yeah. Exactly. Which is one they mentioned in the um paper, this American newt. They uh Johnson and Brody in nineteen seventy five did some trials with chickens. And they Oh were, yeah, the Did you read this Brody, paper as Brody, well? Well no, but Brody et al. have done loads of work with those newts and uh, their predators and the sort of toxic arm race. Yeah which yeah. they are involved in. Yeah. It's really cool. Very interesting stuff. Well, what they did was they, uh, they had a load of these newts, which were dead um, from a captive breeding project, I assume. And they had chickens and they were kind of testing out which positions of newt were the chickens were least likely to eat. And um, they actually found that the chickens were much less likely to eat a newt that was belly up, um, showing mm. this aposomatic warning orange coloration. Um, and they also quickly learned that the poisonous one, the orange ones were poisonous, which is, yeah, kind of a really cool old study demonstrating the effectiveness of uh, aposematism and the feigning death, which presumably being golden when the golden mantellas turn belly up and expose this bright gold, the predator's going to get a big eyeful of gold. And if they are going to be put off by a coloration, then that's the time. Yeah, at that point you're pulling out all the stops to <laughs> prevent being eaten, aren't you? So yeah, this is everything f- you've got. This is a full-on like my stress hormone levels are at an all-time high. A load of a load of processes are going on in my brain to tell me that it's time to stay perfectly still and turn upside down. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, quite quite. It is it is a bizarre evolution. You think. Yeah, oh, it's, it's really cool. But yeah, so um, this tonic immobility is, is what they call it, this um, thanatosis, this feigning dead. And um, longer bouts of feigning death are associated with more threatening situations. And it's kind of anticipated that wild animals will find situations more threatening and therefore produce a more realistic feigning death response and a longer one than captive ones, which are kind of accustomed to feigning death or... Um, you know, not as fearful and therefore won't be as stressed and won't turn upside down for as long kind of thing. Yeah, it can be essentially turned into a proxy for um, survive- ability to survive in a pr- predator-filled environment, right? Yeah. It's, it's, how, how good are they going to be in the wild? 
It's interesting, though, that that is the methodology, um, because at least in my experience, it was as soon as I released my grip, the snake was just like, whoa, this guy's not paying attention. I'm going to go now. But let's say, I mean, they're talking about what they're measuring is how long they stay immobile, don't they? Yeah. So if you've got a frog that only stays immobile for 10 seconds and then gives up, it's game over at that point. But if you stay immobile for a minute, you've got a lot bigger window for that predator to loosen its grip and you to get out before you give up. Yeah. Being as the predator in this experiment was the human hand, it kind of never, ever leaves. You're never The frog's never left alone, so it would make good sense for the frog to continue that response indefinitely. Yes. Well, because it's a last, you know, that is your last line of defence in this situation. So giving up on that is, well, death, right? Hmm. So sticking there, sticking at it for as long as you possibly can, yeah, is going to help. And they kind of their hypothesis was that um, captive golden mantellas would not go tonically immobile for as long um, mm. because they would be habituated to humans, you know, occasionally handling them for cleaning or feeding or just generally being around. You know, these ginormous hands aren't completely alien to them, and so um, they would likely not be immobile for as long when they were squeezed by one of these hands yes so yeah what they 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 compared the frog's reaction from two wild populations the mangabi rainforest which was the same as the previous study but also um frogs from the ambatovi mining site which are a mixture of wild and translocated frogs so frogs that have been put there from other areas where they've had to be moved because of sort of mining activities and the like um, and they also used two captive populations, the same as the previous study, one one lot from uh, Chester Zoo and one lot from the Madagascar Mitsinjo Association Captive Breeding Centre. I, I realised we didn't point out that the uh, the captive population in Madagascar is only one generation removed from wild frogs. That's right, yeah, they're F1. So the, the Chester one is more distantly uh, related to you know originating population. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, would they be more distantly related or just more generationally separated if they're... Kind well, of... but more more generationally separated. I'm not saying there's any sort of... I'm not saying that they have changed. Uh, <laughs> what, They've mutated. Three, four, five generations, <laughs> however many generations it is. <laughs> they're but... perfectly adapted to life in a box. <laughs> <laughs> they're learning. <laughs> life finds a way, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. So the the methodology they used is pretty high tech in fairness. They held the frog upside down on the palm of their hand for 10 seconds using a thumb. Yep. And then they measured how long they stayed tonically immobile for. However, they did use the exact same hand and thumb for every single experiment. Yes, I did like that because <laughs> when person... you think about how basic this methodology is, <laughs> you know, there's not much that can really go wrong, but yeah. uh, keeping things like that steady is, is yeah. It's definitely Definitely good. worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, they just measured how long they pretend to be dead post thumb squeezing. Yeah. Do you yep. want to get? Do you want to get into what they found out? Yes. So what was weird was the Madagascan captive breeding population seemed to be the worst off when it came to tonic immobility. They stayed immobile for the shortest amount of time, whereas the one the wild frogs and the captive ones in Chester were more equitable. There wasn't a significant difference between the two of them. Which 
I don't know, seems seems quite remarkable that you're pointing out that it's not just a difference between wild and captive, but it's actually the conditions in captivity yeah, can elicit a significant difference in this, this anti-predator response. So there were some notable differences, weren't there, between the um, captive uh, conditions for the Madagascan captives, which had a much shorter tonic immobility time, and the Chester Zoo captives, which had a much longer tonic immobility time. The the captive ones in Madagascar actually had the lowest body condition, which is kind of a measure of their health, really. It's sort of how chubby they are in, in comparison to their length. Yeah, weight, weight and size uh, index, isn't it? Yeah, and so they were the sort of skinniest of the bunch. Um, they also, unlike the frogs in Chester, um, they didn't have any uh, additional nutrient supplementation. They were just fed bugs. They weren't fed sort of dusted bugs. It's quite often... Uh, captive animals are given you know calcium and d3 anyone who anyone who keeps lizards will know that you also give them uh uv lighting which the frogs in chester were given but the frogs in madagascar weren't given um and Mm. you know that's all to do with the metabolism of uh certain vitamins and minerals and the enclosures in madagascar were also less naturalistic so while in chester they had like moss and rocks to hide under and branches to climb and uh, little pools and what have you in uh Madagascar, probably owing um, to the monetary limitations, I would imagine, they didn't have so much of life's luxuries. They kind of just had gravel, a coconut hide and a water dish. Uh, Much simpler setup. Yes. And this is all just sort of feeding into what they suggested was that the the Madagascan captive population were just generally more stressed. They just had a higher background stress level. So it deadened or softened any response to the hand hand restraining them. Mm. Yeah, they did. They because they already had higher cortisone. Uh, well, they they suggested that might have been a cause. They stopped short of actually testing that. Um, yes, but... no, that's no, no. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't proven. But that seems quite reasonable, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it would be cool to have the cortisone level uh, testing alongside this. Um, I mean, cortisone and stress levels is kind of the emerging uh, science, isn't it? Just to actually measure the, the the level of hormone rather than just the sort of behavioural response because it's a much more accurate measure of stress. But, you know, it's not it's not easily done, especially probably not for a frog. No, and you also have the problem of collecting that stuff will prompt some sort of <laughs> stress to the animal. You are disturbing them trying to get a blood sample or something aren't you yeah 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 you are and i know i know yeah i know for snakes that you kind of have this time lag between the the stressful event and the um cortisol level peaking Mm. but i don't know if anyone knows i haven't read anything about that for frogs so who knows it might not even be feasible i don't know it might well be very feasible and perhaps someone will do it soon but yeah regardless the, the the captive frogs in madagascar were the least seemingly the least adapted to stressful situations and um while that is bad news for the captive propagation there it the fact that when you maintain them in good facilities like they have in chester and they've got access to what they need they actually are very similar in their response to threats yes and body condition and body so, condition. you know they're healthy responding correctly we did just previously mention that the calls might be a bit funny but this is precisely why these studies are being done, to try and narrow down these aspects of natural uh, history and natural biology that you need to integrate into a captive environment to produce a population that can be feasibly 
reintroduced and to bolster wild populations. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's good to know that the Chester population can be sort of, you know, they're not going to, they're not just going to um, sort of hop around willy nilly. They're going to actually react to stress in a way that <laughs> Mother Nature kind of once upon a time intended, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it would be horrible to release, I don't know, 20 little frogs and they just hop away and you just see all the snakes and the birds come down and yeah. they just get picked off in front of your eyes. Just like, that'd be horrible. Uh, release, all that the, work. release the hapless captives. <laughs> Terrible. Little did they know. Yeah. Ah, but... Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case. No, absolutely not. And um, For the Chester Zoo ones anyway. Yeah. And actually, um, I went onto the website of this... Um, the Madagascar Mitsinjo Association Captive Breeding Centre. And mm. um, yeah, they've got a cool little website. I put it in the show notes. And uh, yeah, you can actually donate there to their research. So if you want to contribute to some uh, Golden Mantella research, then that's totally doable, uh, which I thought was quite quite cool. Yeah. Well, that's quite a good course because they're right on the edge. Yeah, they are. So I put the link in the show notes. And if anyone feels like they've got a little bit of money, there's a, 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 an in, a link through Amphibian Art because it's quite hard to send small amounts to Madagascar or something or other. But yeah, it's on there. And yeah, hopefully Very cool. Hopefully, more research into these really awesome little bright orange frogs. Yeah, and hopefully some, some solutions out of the research for the uh, disparity in, in cooling. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, maybe, you know, you you could, there is actually a little drop down box. You can select exactly what you want your money to go to. So maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, training frogs to speak properly will uh, be in the drop down menu at some point in the near future. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I, I mean, I wonder if what sort of solutions there might be. Keeping them in different sort of uh, sonic environments might be one. Yeah, well, perhaps they just, need to be, they just need to be played white noise so they can't hear their neighbours. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. I mean, we t- we going back to episode two, we talked about these frogs adapting to noisy environments and how they do have that flexibility. And um, I think it proves with the Madagascan captive population that that was a change in cool across one generation. To me, it suggests quite high level of flexibility in the cools, right? Yeah, yeah, you'd hope so. So I I feel like if they can learn it or unlearn it, they can relearn it in a generation mm. or yeah, two and it would, or three. It, it, it feels solvable, doesn't it? Yeah, and it would be quite fun to set up some kind of frog arena where the males have a chance to learn how to fight before they go into the wild. <laughs> a frog arena? Yeah, come gonna... on. <laughs> Look, I didn't, get into the, I didn't get into this conservation <laughs> business to help animals. I want to see them fight. <laughs> <laughs> fight for my enjoyment. <laughs> Go, Goldie, go. <laughs> go, Goldie, yeah. <laughs> 20 bucks on Goldie. They're both called Goldie now. <laughs> Goldie A, five. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this, I mean, <laughs> to a more serious note, I also did a bit more reading because that seemed to what these papers really came down to was captive environments and how key that was. So there was a paper by uh, Burghardt in 2013 which is all about amphibian and reptile keeping, basically, Mm -hmm. and discusses all the perhaps less... Like, we think of mammals and birds and stuff as needing enrichment in their captive environment, don't we? Yeah. But they were sort of saying how reptiles and amphibians have sort of been forgotten in that respect over previous years, although they have demonstrated that some species are 
well, quite complex, certainly behaviourally complex, and can even solve puzzles. We know monitor lizards can count to six, I think it is. And this is a sort of aspect of research that hasn't really been capitalised on yet, and is something that we need to do if if ex situ conservation is really going to take off and be successful, is you've got to keep these animals in, in good conditions and enriched and uh, to maintain all these, these behavioural adaptations that would help them in the wild. Mm. They give it a good example of the uh, South African clawed frog is one that has this wealth of information behind it because it's been used in biomedical studies so often that keeping it alive and breeding it well in captivity is... Uh, well, it's got the money behind it, so it's been done very well, and that information is present. It'd be nice to move towards that for a lot of other captive populations. Mm, yeah. And I'm sure the information's out there. We know there are good, there are loads of captive breeders out there, both private and in zoos, that are doing fantastic work to keep, you know, populations up. I mean, we talked about this before, but it feels like there just needs to be that formalization of it, so it's published yeah. Yeah. and accessible to other people. So there's a better information sharing. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you do see that, like, um, you know, there's certain kind of species. I know um, there's a lot goes on with, um, oh, what do you call them now? Um, Somalia bolani, the Bolan's python. Mm. They, they are, um, there's like a very small group of hobbyists. Uh, I mean, the Facebook group, which is how I know about it. But they are kind of like on the cutting edge of trying to, encourage these animals to breed and you know they're all kind of experimenting with different strategies and you know one year one of them will get a clutch of eggs but only one will hatch and then the next year you know some will have you know limited success and they're kind of all in a um not formalized way but in a very scientific way in in as far as you can over facebook with like you know disparate people um yes they are they are doing their very best and they're doing a lot more than sciences which is fantastic Um, but like you say if there was just some kind of repository for their successes beyond uh the world of social media it'd probably go a long way in the future to help yeah that's what i think we need is something that that uh documents the lineages of these captive animals and just more documentation on how they've been kept like just really just formalize it because people are doing it as you say people are doing it and they are there is success out there yeah yeah but yeah there we have it our little uh our little ex situ conservation golden mantella hype train draws to a draws to a halt um i did want to, before we finish on that i did oh, yeah, want to ask on. you one question whether you heard about um ecuador selling endangered frogs to undermine the poaching activity of them did you hear did about hear, this new story I did, I did hear about that i think we've talked about that before haven't we me and you maybe not in an episode of this but i think we've discussed it yeah so it's it, it's basically the breeding of uh what were they they were was this a news article that you read because i think i might have shared it on uh the um I think I might have shared it on the Herb Highlights Facebook actually yeah. once upon a time. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably where I got it, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, go on, what were you going to say? I don't remember it that well, but yeah, let's, 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 let's get into that. Well, I, I just wanted to sort of get your, get your opinion on it, the, the idea of setting up a captive breeding population and then selling them on to uh, the pet market as a way to counter poaching and taking from wild populations. And whether that is actually something that's 
should be encouraged and is ethical and would actually help reduce poaching or it's going to just sort of not because poaching's still going to be quite cheap isn't it so so um i think fundamentally it's a good idea and it comes from the right place i'm no expert in this so a lot of what i'm going to say is probably just conjecture and nonsense but my fear would be that the way i perceive trade in rare and endangered species to work is that the very thing which makes them attractive is the tra- the fact that they're rare to a lot of people. And so um, it could be that once you flood the market in this way, um, the market may not stay flooded for long. Because I hear from sort of like hobbyists of uh, snakes and stuff, you know, num- numerous friends that we share of hobbyists, I keep snakes, and, you know. And they say a lot of people who are a bit older talk about times where certain species which are really hard to get hold of now have been really, really popular and like really hard to get and really expensive. Um, And then likewise, similarly, there's species which in the past have been really abundant and easy to get hold of, which are now really, really difficult to get hold of. And my concern would be that there wasn't enough people who were interested in keeping these animals as pets if they weren't easy to keep that eventually the interest would wane because they were common and then it wouldn't be reasonable for the people who initially flooded the market as a means of conserving them to keep doing so and they'd eventually wind up 10 years down the line 15 years down the line being just as rare as they initially were without any impetus for anyone to keep flooding the market and the whole cycle would repeat itself yeah so it would just be waxing waning on on fashion and uh yeah and 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 scarcity yeah i'm not sure how eloquently i put it because that was a bit of a train of thought but yeah like that would be my principal concern because it's a really nice idea and i think like from my limited understanding of an economics fundamentally fundamentally it should be a good idea yeah well that's what makes it so sort of sort of interesting is this this intersection between what is essentially turning these frogs into a i don't know a, a commodity i guess but sort of well intentioned and i wonder how long that will actually last before it just comes into another you know it's another money-making scheme that i don't know i'm just skeptical that it will actually i like i like it in principle to undermine poaching because i feel like poaching will happen regardless but to just go over people's heads seems like it's not particularly sustainable because there are still whoever i don't know who these poachers are i feel we've made this distinction previously as well if they're poachers that that's their only source of income, living off of whatever rainforest and making use of that rainforest in whatever way they can. Just going over their head and selling frogs is not going to take away the problem. It's just curing a symptom. Yeah. So I wonder if if you're integrating the people who are doing the poaching into the selling and breeding, then I see that as being a uh, that that could genuinely solve solve long term problems, right? Because mm. you're creating a new source of income yeah, or that's... replacing their poaching income. But if you just do it over their heads, just a firm comes in and says we're doing this, yeah, then it's you're you know you're just causing. I don't think that's really going to help. Yeah, I guess yeah, man. Like with anything, I guess it's like it comes down to at some level it's going to boil down to like socio-economic development and sustainable sustainable infrastructure. Otherwise, yeah, you're going to end up back where you started eventually because they're just going to look for something else to do, which is likely not. Yeah. Yeah, not what we perceive to be good for the rainforest or whichever habitat it is. Yeah, no, that's a no, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I mean, that's that's unfortunately I don't I didn't see in the news article whether they were working with previous poachers or something because that's something that happens in Africa, isn't it? With po- ex poachers become rangers and things like that. There is a 
a crossover between the two groups. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how much of that is re- reality and how much of that is just like news. It's a nice story, yeah. Fairy, yeah it's a bit of a fairy tale, isn't it? Like I maybe used to, I used to kill the elephants, but now I like protecting elephants. Like, yeah, that sells. But if you, pro- you know, if if someone is only killing the elephants for monetary gain, yeah, and you you pay them a good wage to do another job working yeah. with elephants but protecting them it's, i mean it's worth a try right yeah no yeah definitely worth a try yeah yeah i think oh man i think i wonder there must be um there must be numerous people doing really specific research on this very topic actually and i'd like to hear from them if there are yeah i'm i'm, I'm sure there is i'm sure if we did a bit of digging there were there'd be some uh iucn report on the success of uh market incentives to lessen poaching or something along those lines <laughs> yeah yeah definitely that would yeah that'd be really really cool to read cool um right so you know what time it is don't you is it species of the bi-week time it is it is yes. and uh whose turn is it to introduce the paper shall i go for it or do you uh, do it? yeah is it your go yeah no you, you go for it i think uh all right on. how very yeah because I've, I've i've got some stuff i can i can i can We've got some corrections to make after this, so I'll... Good, yeah, good, good. How classically British of us. So our species of the bi-week comes from the paper Gunther and Richards 2016, description of two new species of the microhylid frog genus Oreophryne, Amphibia annua microhylidae, from southern Papua New Guinea. Uh, And this was published in Vertebrate Zoology and is delightfully open access. So if you fancy having a read, go and check it out. So two for the price of one. Yeah, double whammy. Um, I always think it's quite generous when scientists give us two species in one paper. <laughs> um, and, you know, I read this one. I was in a mood where I had a voracious appetite for a frog I'd never heard of. And this this paper provided double dose. Yeah. Um, so. Which, which one's your favourite? Oh, my gosh. Uh, the second one, <laughs> Oreo Phryne, uh Sudoyuna color. Yeah, so cool. It's so cool. The first one's nice, but the second one, I mean, it's just is mind blowing. Well, let's do the let's do the uh, the first one first and finish on the better one. Yeah. Uh, can one species ever truly be considered better than another? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, you can put this one next to that one. So the Definitely. first. So as we kind of as it mentions in the title. These species are from Papua New Guinea. Um, Papua New Guinea is, well, Papua is the island and New Guinea is the eastern side of the island. Um, Papua is split down the very centre. It's a big island. It's like the second biggest island. Uh, These frogs have actually been um, around in the scientific knowledge since 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been waiting years to be described. They were spotted a long time ago by uh, one of the authors. Well, I think it's it's Gunther, isn't it? Is it Gunther? Yeah. Well, he certainly described other species. So I presume that it's been some like a series of uh, excursions, and they found a whole bunch of frogs, and it's just taken a long time to get through the backlog. More than likely, um, as we see in other parts of the world, it's a lot of work to describe a species. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Um, yeah. And even they were saying. Perhaps nearly half of the frogs there are still undescribed. The first species is uh, Oreophryne flavomaculata, which basically means yellow spotted. 
Flavo being yellow, maculado meaning spotted. Simple. Now, we like that. Yes. Descriptive, to the point. The name's going to reinforce the uh, the visual that you see. And these guys, these guys are pretty pretty. Quite small, too. 20 to 30 millimetres. So, a generous thumbnail. And they are rather stunning looking, really. I mean, this I know we were saying this is perhaps the less attractive of the two frogs we've got, but these guys are pretty remarkable in their own right. It's quite rich, orangey-reddish colour, um, paler, sort of tan-coloured eyes. Um, and they've got these, these beautiful yellow spots just on their sort of rear flanks, which I presume is where the name's coming from specifically. Maculata, yeah. The groin. Yeah. The groin. Is that a well, groin? Well, they called it, they called it the uh, inguinal region. And I was yes. like, what's an inguinal region? Where's my inguinal region? <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I just Googled it and it said the groin of an animal. Well, I suppose it's because frogs are all backwards, aren't they? Mm, yeah. They're, yeah. I mean, that's why they were once known as the back to front. Jumpy man. <laughs> what is that? Oh, well, that's the back to front, all upside down, lives in a stream, jumpy man. <laughs> I like to call him the fly eater. <laughs> you know, the leaf litter bug muncher. <laughs> <laughs> leaf litter bug muncher. <laughs> oh, that's spot on. <laughs> oh. Uh, Oh, but what, what but yes, back on back on track. Back on track. Yeah, they are oh. very beautiful. Um, you were halfway through describing them. Their legs are kind of darker than the body. In fact, actually, yep. I've got to say, not all of them are created equal. Figure six displays a very handsome frog, while figure seven, yes. to my mind, displays a somewhat more mediocre specimen. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I would agree with that. Yeah, uh, and then four figure eight, poor old. Uh, it's the frog from figure figure seven has been manhandled in some way <laughs> <laughs> to, to show off the yellow spots. Yeah, yeah. To, surely before being preserved in alcohol. Um, oh god! <laughs> sorry, I always mention the darkness. <laughs> anyway, yeah, a nice looking frog by all accounts. Um, mm. And uh, ecological notes. I like that. There's a little section. They don't know much about them, obviously, because they've only just been described. But. Uh, the males called from leaves three to five meters up in the trees, um, especially in the night and after heavy rain. Like so many frogs, they come out after it rains. And um, mm. they were locally abundant and uh, they live in mossy forest, which, I mean, that just sounds really nice, mossy forest. It sounds comfortable, doesn't it? Yeah, just yeah. like I could feel really calm there. But yeah, they uh, were hard to catch because they like elevated perches in steep broken limestone cast which we've discussed numerous times is this crazy jagged terrain uh, formed of weathered limestone which yes, is under undermined limestone yeah just like you undermined my point <laughs> <laughs> yeah take that <laughs> was that a was that some kind of like second generation pun <laughs> meta pun oh my god um yeah and so that was the first one that they discovered really cool and as you said flavo maculata aureophrine flavo maculata because of its um yellow spots and i know where i remembered the flavo thing from because the um the turtle we we had as our species of the bye week in episode six six yeah six yes yeah, yeah 
was um, called Elsea Flavia Ventralis because it was the yellow-bellied hmm. or cowardly snapping turtle. See, I love that. That's why we like these descriptive names because you start connecting these dots between traits, between species, because it's, it's all inherent in the name, isn't it? I, I love that. It is cool. The only danger will be when the frogs which are waiting to be described are described and there's another one with the, uh, the yellow spot in the Inguinal well, region. Well, it's funny you mention that because the one we're about to go on to, that's happened... Oh Not yeah, in quite the same way, but it yeah. has happened. Shall we move on to him? Huh? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to Oreophryon's Sudunicolor. So you described when we were looking for a good species of Dubai week. You yeah. saw this guy, this this guy or girl. I don't know what the uh, adult male. Adult male. Yes, and you described it as looking like a galaxy. Yes, I stand by that. I think it looks it looks awesome. It's got all these tiny little teeny teeny tiny blue specks and i assumed that the sued uni color was named because at a glance it looks like it's one color but upon closer inspection it's actually a veritable smorgasbord of <laughs> hues and shades and tints and speckles the like of which you're unlikely to have ever seen before or again in nature <laughs> you're selling this frog frog pretty hard <laughs> <laughs> i've got to say I really like this one. I thought it's cool looking. Absolute stunner. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got bright, bright orange eyes. The very tip of the nose is sort of a, a less rich but orangey colour. It then shifts into a pinky orangey red into deeper pink. And then the pink transitions into sort of a, a purpley pink and then off into a darker Purple for the rear legs and the belly is is slightly paler, so you've got all those colours transitioning and fading down to the edge of the frog, all the while covered with these these tiny sort of blue white speckles. It's stunning, absolutely stunning, really great. And um, yeah, just I mean, what more do you need to say? Really, it's just a handsome little creature. And the reason it was called Unicolor, though, sued Unicolor, wasn't what we thought at all, was it? It was because um, it was not. Oreophryon unicolor, but appeared as if it was at a glance. So actually, everything we you know we just hyped about is completely wrong. But I found that to be quite amusing, and I think if we try and disseminate this podcast as widely as possible, we can actually create a situation where our version of events is the real version of events. <laughs> <laughs> we just cut the bit where we actually say the real the real yeah. origin of the name. <laughs> so what does this one do then? where the other one was sort of three to five metres up and in the mossy forest. This guy's higher up. He's up to 30 metres up into the trees, slightly bigger in size. He got 26 to 35 millimetres. But most interesting of all, we were talking about how if you name something and then you find something else, which is described by that name even better than before, you have this sort of weird problem where one's... You know, maybe they wouldn't have been named that way round if you had found both simultaneously. Ah. So this guy has been found to, for the males, to guard their eggs. But there's already a member of Oreophryne called Oreophryne oviprotector. No or way. Protector. That's so Which cool. literally means egg guardian. That's so Which was awesome. also described by Gunther et al. in 2012. I mean, sort of a lumpy green version. Not nearly as attractive, really. <laughs> but does that egg guarding behaviour. So, quite cool. So they protect the eggs. Is it the males or females that protect the eggs? The males. Cool, cooling males are found to protect the eggs. 
So the other cool thing which they mentioned was this this instance that they could, um, when they were calling, or some of these species called, they do a sort of a wave through the forest where one calls and it sets off the next one, and it sets off the next one, and the next one, and it sort of waves through the forest. So you can get this this rolling frog call across across distances. I'm not sure if that was in this paper or the, the Gunther 2012 paper that I was just talking about, but it happened. I mean, imagine being in that forest and having this sort of wave of frog vocalisation go by you. I mean, that seems wicked. Well, I was already feeling pretty chill in the mossy forest, and then a wave of frog <laughs> vocalisations washed over me. And now I'm bordering euphoria. he's lost it leave him in the forest he's with the frogs now (laughs) (laughs) oh these are a cool species i'm glad we managed to find um some frogs as well to go with our golden mantella yeah it's quite hard to find a frog that's quite as uh good looking as a golden mantella yeah but um old orofrini sudunicolor definitely giving it a run for its money yeah yeah they're really cool uh, yeah, well, I think we've done our double dose species of the bi-week justice. Um, I think so, yes. Uh, now, we've got some sort of other business. Corrections and clarifications. Oh. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, nice, nice. I I would have just been like, A-O-B. What? I used to work for the council, so it's called any other business. <laughs> Oh, well, that doesn't sound nearly as, nearly as exciting. No, it's not. It's not as exciting. So clarifications and corrections is way better. So I think I think it was me that said it. So I'll start off. I'm pretty, I'm, I mean, I know it was me that said it. I'm sure it was. No, Ben, um, don't blame yourself. It could just as easily have been me, and I had it in my notes as well. Well, I don't think so, because I, it was... Basically, I used it as an excuse to play another frog call. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, this isn't the this isn't the uh, the taxonomical mishap. Well, no, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Oh, because the only reason that, that this came up was because I wanted to play the call from yeah. Seychello Phryne Gardineri. Yes. Um, and I said that they were closely related to our purple frog. Just to clarify, we're now discussing corrections to episode. Oh yeah, of course. Seven, Fossorial Frogs, episode seven. Which wasn't our most latest, wasn't our latest episode, but uh, we ended up recording episode eight very quickly after episode seven, so we didn't get a chance to make these corrections. Yes. So basically we have the frog that I played the call for and our purple frog, and I said they were closely related, but that's not necessarily the case. Because actually our purple frog is in its own family as of... uh, more recent papers says uh, Bijou and Boysant and Boysant and Rowlands, two thousand three and two thousand nine, respectively, which show that there was a split, hundred twenty to eighty million years ago, separating these sort of uh, frogs originating from the Seychelles and that sort of area, uh, Sue Glossidae, and our purple frog, which belongs to Nasibak Trachidae. Um, so they've actually been separated for quite a long time. And while they're not closely related because of that long separation, they are the closest relatives that exist for the purple frog, which is why I think I made that mistake. Well, I think it's easy enough. Easily enough. Easy enough to make, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, well, there's a difference between being closest related and closely related, though. 
Yeah, that's true, yeah. Because 120 million years maximum, that's a long, that's a hell of a separation. Yeah, I mean, that's... What's that, mid-Cretaceous? Yeah, if not early Cretaceous. Because, yeah, I mean, that's twice as long ago as the dinosaurs went extinct. Yeah. So basically, their separation was caused by a... By vicariance is when you call it when there's a continent separation, so they're split by uh, virtue of moving moving plates. Yeah, because India and the Seychelles used to be kind of part of the same supercontinent, didn't they? Yeah, but that seems to be what's accepted now, is that they're separate families, and our purple frog belongs to its own family. And actually, at the time of recording, was the only described species of that family... So as of 2017, and a paper by Janani uh, Vasudevan, Pratini, Dutta, and Agarwal, um, they describe a new species, a second purple frog. Yeah. Nasty cat Bactracus bupafi. And this was, this was really neat because part of the reason, or part of the way they ID'd it, was using the paper we talked about, the Thomas et al. 2014 paper, um, with the calls. So it's all sort of come in a sort of beautiful circle that there's there's now an it's all worked. There's there's a second species, quite well, quite a cryptic species, unsurprisingly. And uh yeah. That is really nice. And um I did a little bit of reading about these uh Bupathi's purple frogs. Um and they've got weird tadpoles that use they've got like a sucky mouth, uh and they they <laughs> the uh, technical term. Yeah, they got a sucky mouth, and uh, they use it to cling to rocks behind waterfalls, which start after heavy rains, and then they graze on algae, which grows following heavy rains. Um, hence, why the frogs come out. I mean, you know, which came first, chicken or the egg? But the monsoons trigger these frogs to be active, and then, you know, a little way down the line, when the tadpoles hatch, the monsoons allow them to eat on algae. Um, and they spend about 120 days in the torrent eating algae before they metamorphose. And that's actually the longest amount of time this creature ever spends not subterranean. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's quite cool. That's, isn't it? that's their outdoors life. Yeah. Kind of like if humans went to primary school as normal and then thereafter lived in a subterranean dungeon. And <laughs> only emerging for one week of the year when it was raining to copulate furiously with everyone else who'd also emerged. See, that's that's a very different... Uh, I'm just thinking of the film Time Machine now. The Morlocks. <laughs> so it's a very, very the different Morlocks. film. Yeah. For, for us, it's a terrible dystopian nightmare, but for Bapathy's Purple Frog, it's just another day at the office. Oh, you don't know. They might be... They might be tragically depressed every day of their life. They might hate it. It might be a dystopian future for these poor frogs. Do you think like time slows to a to grinding halt and they just pray for rain? <laughs> and then it's gone in an instant. Oh man. Terrible. God, what yeah, what is their perception of time even like? How the fr- how the frogs perceive time? There's a, there's a PhD for you. There's a that's not a PhD, that's like that's the beginnings of an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably not wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. It was Mark Schertz who gave us those corrections. Um, yes. So cheers, Mark. Um, yeah, it's nice to know you're listening and 
keeping a track of our errors. Hopefully there won't be any this time, but if there are, let us know. Oh, well, you know, I, I call it a 50-50 chance. Yeah, I do as well. I reckon 50-50 is being generous to us, to be honest. But Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're, they're, they're separate family. They're not closely related, but they are the closest relations. 120 million years probably separates them, but could be as small as 80 million years. And we have a newly described species that, you know, is also found in the Western Ghats, if I didn't say. So they're right alongside. Excellent. Um, so I think that just about rounds up our episode, doesn't it? I think so. I I think we've done done sort of captive captive setup with uh, Golden Mantellas some justice, some sort of little insight in how that's going, or or the outcomes of some of those frogs. Um, a little background of Golden Mantella in the wild and what they eat and why they sort of look like poison dart frogs but aren't. And a rather radical double bill of species of the bi week. Yeah, yeah. Some really cool f- new frogs of the genus Oreophrine from Papua New Guinea. As always, like we just mentioned, any comments, corrections, questions, please get in touch. Um, there's various means of doing that. You can email us, herphighlights at gmail.com. Uh, you can also get in touch with us, facebook.com slash herphighlights. Give us a like. You alternatively you can interact with us over Twitter. We are at Herp Highlights. Um, yeah, what else? Um, All the show notes are available. You know, every paper we've mentioned should be up in the show notes at uh, herphighlights.podbean.com. That's where you're guaranteed to get the full list because I know iTunes and places do cut them off after so many uh, so many references. We hit the limit every single time with iTunes uh, <laughs> descriptions, unfortunately. They're not ready for this fully referenced podcast. No, well, it's almost as if the iTunes description is not meant to put a full reference list in. I've, I don't feel like that's something most podcasts do you, or attempt to do. Are you telling me there are podcasts without extensive bibliographies? Yeah, that might be something. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Um, yeah, so... Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah. Hope to hope to talk to you. Well, t- talk at you, I guess. <laughs> next week, next two weeks. Sorry, next fortnight. Oh my gosh, chaos. Mm. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers. They're the ones with um, they're the ones with leaves and trunks. Yeah, trunks, wood. But not different different than elephant type of trunk, different <laughs>